I am Thomas Solomon, and you are listening to the VO2 Podcast. In part one of this series, you learned that your body's two key fuel sources for endurance exercise are stored in different amounts. Remember, your bucket load of fatty acids and pint glass of glucose. In part two, you learned that with increasing exercise intensity and increasing fractions of your maximal aerobic capacity, your VO2 max, your muscles develop a greater reliance on burning glucose and a lesser reliance on burning fatty acids to produce energy at the rate it is needed. Given what you have learned so far, it is time to consider how long your fuel stores will theoretically allow you to go at various running intensities. In this series on performance nutrition, I am focusing on bioenergetics, and I am not taking into account how, during exercise, your increasing body temperature, decreasing hydration status, decreasing muscle or connective tissue resilience, or decreasing motivation can each influence your feelings of fatigue and ability to maintain power output. These important determinants of your ability to keep on rocking offer a future discussion, because before tackling those complexities, it is important to consider how long your stored fuel allows your body to go. Why? Because even at low to moderate intensities, like during an easy effort run, when your muscles derive most of their energy from burning fatty acids, some energy still comes from burning a bit of glucose. Understanding this will help you conceptualize that both longer duration races raced at a lower fraction of your maximum aerobic capacity, VO2 max, and high-intensity races raced at a higher fraction of your VO2 max and therefore at a higher speed, will eventually deplete your pint glass of glucose, despite having plenty left in your bucket load of fatty acids. Consequently, this framework will help you understand the need for performance nutrition to help you last the distance. So, where do we start? Well, since it is your muscles that are burning lots of fuel during exercise, let's start with that part of the integrative physiology puzzle. What happens to muscle glycogen during exercise? If we take a journey in Doc's DeLorean and head back to Boston in the 1920s, we can witness the first moment when humans realised that prolonged moderate to high intensity exercise depletes our glucose stores. In 1924, Sam Levine and colleagues at Harvard Medical School found that runners completing the Boston Marathon had lower blood glucose levels than when they started, many with signs of hypoglycemia like dizziness, collapse and confusion caused by clinically meaningful low blood glucose levels. Some years later, in 1939, Eric Christensen and Ova Hansen found that cyclists took around two hours to ride to exhaustion at 177 watts, at which point they had developed hypoglycemia. These were seminal observations, but they did not provide clues as to why blood glucose fell. In 1961, 
Reichard and colleagues used an intravenous infusion of radioactive carbon-14 labelled glucose to show that blood glucose is taken up into exercising muscle and burned to produce energy. The work also demonstrated that the loss of glucose from the blood into muscle is compensated by an increase in glucose release from the liver. In 1967, Jonas Bergström and Eric Holtman used muscle biopsies to show that prolonged exercise decreases muscle glycogen levels. By using arteriovenous catheterization across the liver, they also found that the liver releases glucose into the blood during exercise, but that its attempt to keep providing glucose to working muscles by releasing more glucose into blood during exercise is insufficient to match the total amount of glucose burned during exercise. Remember, your body always makes fuel available to the working muscle. In the 1970s, the muscle biopsy technique became widespread. In the context of running, in 1971, Dave Costell's work showed that the progressive decline in muscle glycogen over three days caused by daily high-intensity running, running 10 miles a day, and in 1973, he further demonstrated that a 30-kilometer race, run at 83% of VO2 max, caused a 30% reduction in the muscle's fat store, IMTG, and a 60% reduction in muscle glycogen levels. Many studies have since studied muscle glycogen utilization during exercise, and nowadays we are confident that prolonged exercise eventually depletes muscle glycogen. To help minimise any date doubt in this sentiment, in 2018, Jose Harita and Will Hopkins published a beautiful meta-analysis of all known clinical data, showing that high-intensity exercise and longer-duration exercise are the biggest predictors of the rate of muscle glycogen use. Furthermore, it is now clear that a low glycogen state has a dramatic effect on whole-body metabolism. For example, Glycogen depletion reduces the capacity to burn glucose, which will reduce our capacity to go fast, and increases muscle protein breakdown, which may affect recovery. Plus, more recently, we have come to appreciate that de the depletion of specific glycogen compartments that are bound to contractile proteins cause reduced force production directly implicating low glycogen with muscle fatigue. When someone reaches exhaustion through glycogen depletion, total muscle glycogen levels are never zero. Instead, we now know that the depletion of specific depots of available glycogen occurs in type 1 slow-twitch muscle fibres during long-duration endurance exercise and in type 2, fast-twitch fibres during high-intensity or strength exercise. Okay, it is probably now pretty clear to you that prolonged exercise depletes muscle glycogen. The next important question is, what happens to liver glycogen during exercise? In the second part of this series, you learnt that as exercise proceeds, your muscles not only chip away at their glycogen stores, but they also guzzle glucose from the blood. 
As your intensity of exercise increases, the rate of muscle glycogen breakdown also increases and your muscles take increasingly larger gulps of glucose from the blood. If your body did not have a contingency plan, the pint of glucose in your blood, which remember is only 4 grams, would be drunk dry rapidly and you would quickly cease to exist. But there is a contingency plan. Your liver, it is awesome. Many moons ago, Lars Nilsson and Eric Hultman used arteriovenous catheterization techniques across the liver to show that in healthy folks, the liver throws glucose into the blood at about 0.15 grams per minute to help maintain normal blood glucose levels throughout the night, providing a constant fuel source for all your organs to feed on. They showed that about half of the liver glucose output during the first 10 hours of an overnight fast comes from liver glycogen breakdown, while the other half comes from gluconeogenesis, otherwise known as new glucose synthesis, from metabolites like glycerol, lactate and amino acids. Such findings have been confirmed using less invasive nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy methods but these are energy-costly processes that the liver cells fuel by producing energy from circulating fatty acids in the blood. The liver can hold about 300 millimoles per litre of glycogen, which, based on a liver volume of around 1.8 litres, is equal to around 100 grams of glycogen. This amount varies little between trained athletes and untrained folks, but it is related to the amount of carbohydrate eaten in the diet. It has also been known since the 1960s that, in us human folks, an overnight fast massively depletes liver glycogen stores. To put that in perspective, since your liver releases glucose at 0.15 grams per minute, and about half of that comes from liver glycogen, then, after a 10-hour overnight fast, your liver glycogen level will be reduced to around 50 grams. But... In the 1970s, Nelson and Holtman found that liver glycogen is rapidly restored with carbohydrate feeding, one of the main reasons that humans eat a morning breakfast. During exercise, the rate at which your muscles remove glucose from the blood goes way up, from, a, from around 0.13 to 0.16 grams per minute at rest, up to around 1 to 1.5 grams per minute during exercise. That is a 6 to 10 fold increase in the amount of glucose leaving the blood every minute. And every drop of glucose that enters the muscle during exercise is burned. It does not form new muscle glycogen. If you remember that the blood only contains about 4 grams of glucose, this means that if you did not have a liver, it would only take a few minutes for you to stop being sweet and the guillotine would drop. To prevent blood glucose levels from dropping, to prevent hypoglycemia, when your tissues are feasting on the blood's sugary goodness, the rate of glucose release from the liver into the blood must also increase to maintain blood glucose levels within a healthy range. In 1967, Jonas Bergström and Eric Holtman used this AV catheterization technique across the liver to show that the rate at which the liver releases glucose into the blood 
increases in proportion to exercise intensity, from around 0.1 to about 0.4 grams per minute in an untrained person. Since that time, several studies have examined this phenomenon using AV balance methods, stable isotopes, carbon-13 NMR, and it is now clear that large amounts of liver-derived glucose are burned by the muscles during exercise. Furthermore, during long duration, say around 3 hours, moderate intensity exercise at about 70% VO2 max, liver glucose output into the blood can reach about 1 gram per minute in endurance-trained athletes. However, this increase in liver glucose output during exercise comes at a cost. Liver glycogen. It is tricky to study liver glycogen in humans because of the high risk of using liver biopsies during exercise. So, alternative indirect methods using stable isotope traces or arteriovenous AV balance measurements of glucose-producing substrates being taken up into the liver have been used to estimate glycogen synthesis rates. Fortunately, some studies have used the modern carbon-13 NMR methods to measure changes in liver glycogen during exercise in endurance-trained athletes. In 2000, Anna Casey and colleagues showed that an 80-minute ride at 70% VO2 max decreased liver glycogen by about 50%, from around 120 grams to about 60 grams. And in 2016, Javier Gonzalez and his colleagues found that following three hours of low-intensity cycling at 50% VO2 max, liver glycogen decreased by about 40% from around 140 grams to about 90 grams. A meta-regression of all known clinical data by Javier Gonzalez clearly shows that the rate of liver glycogen depletion increases dramatically with increasing exercise intensity, but only in untrained folks. In endurance athletes, the rate of liver glycogen breakdown during exercise is lower than that of regular folks and rises to a lesser degree across the range of increasing exercise intensity. Pretty darn cool. Yes indeed, but there are a couple of caveats. During exercise, the liver releases glucose into the blood, and in humans, this is predominantly from the breakdown of liver glycogen stores, rather than from the gluconeogenesis of new glucose. Therefore, when liver glucose output is supporting moderate to high intensity exercise at a rate of 1 gram per minute, most of this glucose is coming from the breakdown of liver glycogen, and since your liver stores about 100 grams of glycogen, it will take only about 100 minutes or 1 hour and 40 minutes to completely deplete your liver glycogen store. Furthermore, Let's not forget that during exercise, your liver tries its best to keep glucose, your economical and high-energy-yielding fuel, available to the muscle. During the early stages of exercise, it is typical to see that the liver releases glucose into the blood at a slightly higher rate than glucose is being removed from the blood into muscle. Therefore, blood glucose levels often rise a little bit there is a slight mismatch between glucose leaving and glucose entering the blood. 
but another mismatch occurs during prolonged exercise when liver glycogen levels become depleted. Then, the liver cannot release glucose at the rate needed to match the high rate of glucose uptake into muscle, which can be as high as 1 to 1.5 grams per minute during exercise. The consequence? If your liver glycogen runs out, pun entirely intended, and if your liver capacity to produce new glucose, gluconeogenesis, is exceeded, blood glucose levels will begin to drop, resulting in hypoglycemia, the symptoms of which are not at all pleasant, excess sweating, shivering, nausea, dizziness, and other things. To put this in context, hypoglycemia can arise if your race is long enough, or intense enough, or if your liver and muscle glycogen levels were already low to begin. When this happens, it is possible that hypoglycemia acts like a fatigue signal to the brain. Your rating of perceived exertion, your RPE, goes up, exercise feels harder, your power output drops, you slow down, and you are soon forced to, to, to stop probably because your clever brain wants to protect the beautiful body it needs so it can maintain a purpose in life. So, if your liver gets tired of producing glucose during exercise, your race plans will pretty quickly get effed up. Your liver is awesome, but it can only work so hard. Hearing about glycogen depletion and hypoglycemia is all very depressing. So, Let's turn our attention to something way more positive. How long can you theoretically go? You already know what your body stores. Around 10 kilograms of fat in a 65 kilogram person with 15% body fat, equivalent to around 100,000 kilocalories of energy. About 400 grams of muscle glycogen, about 1,600 calories around 100 grams of liver glycogen, around 400 calories, with about 4 grams of glucose, about 16 calories, circulating in the blood. These ingredients are the essence of my bucket load of fatty acids and pint glass of glucose analogy. You also know that as you work harder, you use relatively more glucose than fatty acids to fuel your forward progress. Because of the limited size of your bodily carbohydrate store, it is very wise to assume that you are metabolically limited in how long you can proceed before fatigue sets in. And, as I mentioned at the beginning of this post, this is without even considering other important contributors to fatigue, like training status, hydration, body temperature or motivation. During an easy effort low to moderate intensity run, at about 60% VO2 max, your body is merely drip-feeding from its carbohydrate stores, glycogen, at a rate of around 1 gram per minute. So, it'll take a few hours to deplete your glycogen stores to critical levels. On the contrary, during very high intensities, i.e. 90% or above or even beyond 100% of VO2 max, which might include races from 800 meters up to 10 kilometers, your glycogen stores are gobbled up at much higher rates. But at such high intensities, you will not deplete your glycogen stores to critical levels because other factors, 
like metabolic acidosis, will limit the duration you can work for before you reach fatigue. Where the double double toil and trouble starts to bubble is during longer duration events, where you can operate at high intensities 70-90% to 90% of your VO2 max for durations that will deplete your glycogen stores within a couple of hours. Most folks can squeeze in a road half marathon, one to two hours, before they get a visit from Macbeth's witches. But when racing for longer than around 90 minutes, for example 16 milers, marathons, trail races, obstacle races, glycogen depletion is a high risk affair. Using what you have learned so far, I will now throw you into some basic maths to help conceptualise how long you can theoretically keep on rocking from a metabolic point of view. Let's imagine that Bob is a well-trained club-level athlete who generally eats a moderately high carbohydrate diet and on marathon race day, where he aims to compete, not merely complete, he has eaten a carbohydrate-containing breakfast. At his marathon pace, Bob's estimated whole body fat oxidation rate is 0.5 grams per minute, and his whole body carbohydrate oxidation rate is 4 grams per minute. At marathon pace, at around 80% of his VO2 max, muscle glycogen will account for about 75% of his whole body carbohydrate burning. So, Bob's muscle glycogen breakdown at marathon pace is around 3 grams per minute. The remaining 25% of his whole body carbohydrate burning will be supported by blood glucose uptake and oxidation. Therefore, his muscle glucose uptake rate from the blood is 1 gram per minute. To maintain blood glucose levels, the liver will have to match this, so Bob's liver glucose output rate into the blood is also 1 gram per minute, perhaps even a little bit higher. And, since most liver glucose output during exercise comes from glycogen, Bob's liver glycogen breakdown rate is close to 1 gram per minute. So, what does all this mean? If, at the start of the race, Bob's liver glycogen store was 100 grams and his muscle glycogen store was 400 grams, at a liver glycogen breakdown rate of 1 gram per minute, and a simultaneous muscle gly glycogen breakdown rate of 3 grams per minute, Bob's liver glycogen store would last about 1 hour 40 minutes, and his muscle glycogen store will be done after 2 hours and 13 minutes. Therefore, because muscle and liver glycogen are simultaneously broken down during exercise, Bob's blood glucose levels will fall around 2 hours into the race. His muscles will feel empty and lose power, and he won't have a hulk hand to smash through the wall. Uh-oh, Bob will slow down. How long can athletes go in practice? To demonstrate this framework with real observations, I borrowed the during exercise substrate oxidation data from Louise Burke's supernova study of world-class athletes who ate either a high-carb or a low-carb ketogenic diet for three weeks during a training camp. By compiling the post-intervention data, we can see how much fuel world-class endurance athletes burn during exercise when they are maximally carb-adapted after three weeks of high-carb diet 
or maximally fat adapted after three weeks of a ketogenic diet. The data showed that the highest rate of fat oxidation at a low to moderate intensity, equivalent to an easy run pace, was about 1.5 grams per minute, and was reported in an athlete in the keto adaptation group. It would take that athlete many moons to burn through their 10 kilos of stored fat at 1.5 grams per minute. At easy run pace, some athletes in the keto adaptation group had carbohydrate oxidation rates as low as 0.1 grams per minute. At that rate, it would take about 83 hours to burn through 500 grams of bodily glucose stores. This explains why some low-carb, high-fat diet-adapted folks, like Michael McKnight, are able to heroically run 100 miles with no food, albeit much slower than his best time, and several hours slower than Zach Bitter's world record time, which was actually broken just this week by Alexander Sorokin as I wrote this series of posts. On the flip side, the supernova data showed that the highest rates of carbohydrate oxidation, approximately 5.5 grams per minute, were recorded during high-intensity exercise at about 20-kilometer race pace in athletes in the high-carb diet-adapted group, who also raced faster than the folks in the low-carb keto-adapted group. In an athlete with a glycogen store of around 500 grams, it would take about 90 minutes to completely deplete carbohydrate stores. In the supernova study, it took athletes between 81 and 95 minutes to complete the 20-kilometer foot race meaning that many athletes would have depleted their body's carbohydrate stores to critical levels during the race. To put all of this into context of running, George Brooks's lab published a neat study examining carbohydrate dependence during marathon running, comparing fast, quicker than 2 hours 45 minutes, versus slow, around 3 hours 45 minutes, marathoners. Their data confirmed that trained marathoners burn relatively more carbohydrate than fat during a marathon, in agreement with all prior data dating back to 1970, while also showing that marathon running speed is associated with the rate of carbohydrate oxidation. Faster marathon, marathoners burn more glucose. Now, let's put this into perspective of something epic. Elliot Kipchoge's official marathon world record is 2 hours, 1 minute and 39 seconds, approximately 20.3 kilometres an hour, or 2.96 minutes per K. As recently documented by Andy Jones in the Journal of Applied Physiology, the average running economy of a world-class breaking two marathon runner is 191 millilitres of oxygen per kilogram body weight per kilometre. When running at marathon world record pace, this is equivalent to 65 millilitres of oxygen being consumed per kilogram body weight per minute. The average body mass of a breaking two world-class marathoner is 59 kilograms. Therefore, we can estimate that at world record marathon pace, world-class male marathoners consume oxygen at a rate of 65 mils per kilo per minute multiplied by 59 kilos, 
which is around 4,000 milliliters per minute, or 4 liters per minute. Because each liter of oxygen produces approximately 5 kilocalories of energy, or 20 kilojoules, the rate of energy expenditure at world record marathon pace for a male world-class marathoner is 4 litres per minute multiplied by 5 kilocalories per litre, which is equal to about 20 kilocalories per minute. Now, let's run a thought experiment. If during a marathon, 100% of breaking two marathoners' energy was coming from glucose, because one gram of carbohydrate provides about four kilocalories of energy, a male world-class marathoner will be burning about five grams of glucose every minute. And at that rate, their total body glucose stores, i.e. around 500 grams, would last about 100 minutes at that pace. On the flip side, one gram of fat, fatty acids, provides about 10 kilocalories of energy and would, therefore, only be burned at a rate of about 2 grams per minute at world record marathon pace. The breaking two marathoners had a body fat percentage of around 8%, so their bodies store roughly 4,700 grams of fat. So, at world record pace, which requires energy at a rate of 20 kilocalories per minute, for a world-class marathoner, if 100% of energy was coming from fatty acids, their large body fat store, 4,700 grams, would last for 2,300 minutes, or 39 hours. And this is where things get cryptic. Eliot Kipchoge cannot run at 20.3 kilometers per hour for 39 hours. He can only sustain that rate of energy expenditure, or pace, for two hours. What does this mean? That Kipchoge cannot sustain 20.3 kilometers per hour for 39 hours, the amount of time his fat stores would theoretically allow, is evidence that fat is not the predominant fuel source used to produce energy when trying to move as fast as possible at a high intensity. Don't start thinking, yeah man, if only Kipchoge was fat adapted to a ketogenic diet. Don't be that fool. A world-class marathoner who has run the fastest ever marathon is massively fat adapted. That is, their maximal fat oxidation rate will be high and it will occur at a high fraction of their maximal aerobic capacity, their VO2 max. As a consequence of their long-term, 5 to 10 years, high volume, more than 160 kilometers per week of training load. This tells us that other factors besides a large capacity to burn fat must determine endurance performance. This tells us that, even in the fastest marathoner on earth, the rate at which fatty acids can be delivered to the muscle's mitochondria and metabolized to produce ATP is not rapid enough to fuel muscle contractions when moving fast. And this just reaffirms what we know about the bioenergetics of glucose and fatty acid metabolism, which you can hear all about in my previous post at vo2.com forward slash fat oxidation rates. Glucose produces ATP, chemical energy, two to four times faster than fatty acids. Glucose produces more ATP per litre of oxygen than fatty acids. And glucose uses less oxygen per gram to produce ATP 
than fatty acids. Simply put, from a bioenergetic perspective, carbohydrate is faster and more economical than fat. What can you put in your performance nutrition toolbox? Always remember that you are the only you. Thinking about these concepts in the context of your race distance while also considering whether you plan to compete or simply complete your race distance will help you understand the bioenergetic demands that will be placed on your body during the race. For example, during a 3000 meter race, you will be running at or very close to your maximal aerobic capacity, your VO2 max, and will therefore be burning large amounts of glucose, but only for about 10 minutes. Your glycogen stores will not run out. During a marathon, on the other hand, you will be running at a lower fraction of your VO2 max, with less reliance on glucose as a fuel, but because of the long duration, you and even Paula Radcliffe or Elliot Kipchoge increase the risk of depleting your glycogen stores. This risk is high if you plan to smash your marathon. Your risk is less high if you are out there to compete and not compete. In other words, if you have trained appropriately, run slow enough and are fat adapted enough, you will likely make it to the finish line with no worries at all. But remember, your energy producing, glucose burning, metabolic system is never off. It works simultaneously with your fatty acid burning system. If you are running at your easy pace, you will be predominantly burning fat, but glucose is still being burned just at a lower rate than when you were working harder. But unlike your bucket load of fat, your pint glass of glucose won't last forever. What this means is that during all intensities of exercise, with time, muscle and liver glycogen will eventually get critically low and your blood glucose will begin to fall. By now, I hope to have helped you logically surmise that one of the keys to successful endurance performance might be to delay glycogen depletion for as long as possible. Hopefully, you have also realised that if you choose to line up on race day with a low carbohydrate availability, with low muscle and low liver glycogen, you will negate all of the hard work you've put in to get to that start line. Perhaps you are thinking, well, if my carbohydrate stores are very small and can be depleted relatively quickly, are there nutritional strategies I can use to help make them last the distance? Well, well, clever clogs, what an excellent question. But the answer will have to wait until the next leg of this journey. Until that time, keep training smart. I occasionally mention brands and products, but it is important to know that I am not sponsored by or receiving advertisement royalties from anyone. I have conducted biomedical research for which I have received research money from publicly funded national research councils and medical charities and also from private companies, including Novo Nordisk Foundation, AstraZeneca, Amelin, the AP Muller Foundation, and the Augustinus Foundation. These companies had no control over the research design, data analysis, or publication outcomes of my work. 
Any recommendations I make are, and always will be, based on my own views and opinions shaped by the evidence available. The information I provide is not medical advice. Before making any changes to your habits of daily living based on any information I provide, always ensure it is safe for you to do so and consult your doctor if you are ever unsure.